Welcome to Living Heritage, a show about people who are engaged in the heritage and culture sector, all those who keep heritage alive at the community level. This episode is part of a series of programs in partnership with the Craft Council of Newfoundland and Labrador to document craft traditions in the province. I'm Dale Jarvis, and today's guest is Wesley Harris. Wesley began silversmithing under his high school art teacher, Arthur Brecken. Both this gentleman and his subsequent instructor at Cranbrook Academy of Art allowed Wesley to learn by trial and error. The underlying inspiration in Wesley's work is nature. He lives in ruggedly beautiful western Newfoundland and his studio overlooks the ocean where he creates high-end hollow ware and jewelry. In 2015, he was inducted into the Royal Canadian Academy of Arts and today we are delighted to welcome him to the studio. Thank you, Dale. I'm delighted to have you here. And, it's a pleasure. And I was, uh, I was privileged to you know, get to have a, a bit of a walk around the exhibit with you yesterday, and, and uh, which was nice to be able to see oh, the totally. work before we, before we got to have a chat about it. Yeah. I was glad to be there. I just happened to be there by luck. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's fortuitous. It, it kind of worked out uh, in our favor. So the, the show is, that is currently up at the, the Craft Council Gallery is called Mentor and Metalsmith. And uh, explain the, the title. Well, I actually gave it even a longer title. It's The Mentor and Metalsmith, The Silver Art of Arthur Brecken and Wesley Harris, because some people thought maybe I was the mentor and the metalsmith, but <laughs> the mentor portion actually refers to my teacher. He was my teacher in high school 46 years ago, a small high school north of Toronto. Yeah. In fact, it was so small that there was not enough room for another teacher to be hired, so he came on board completely voluntarily for six years and wow. taught full-time, Yeah. no pay. Wow. I think they covered materials, but no pay. So that's the kind of man he was. He's very generous. Yeah. So t tell us a little bit about, about Arthur's story then. Well, um, he was a, a cottage craftsperson. He worked in many different mediums, including wood carving, soapstone carving, leather tooling, um, and, and copper enameling. His main claim to fame, though, was the jewelry work. He did silver jewelry, and that's what I think he made his living at, as well as teaching. Right. The combination of teaching and doing the silver jewelry. In fact, early on he gave me some of his commissions. They're all for silver pieces. Um, he had his training at Mount Allison University before the Second World War. He was in the Applied Arts program uh, between 1938 and 1940. And that's all the various craft mediums, including things like basket weaving, etc. Yeah. And, and, and loom, weaving on looms as well. He did yeah. that as well. And, and hung out with some kind of well-known oh, people. Yes. Yeah. It, was, it was actually a rare slice in time at uh, Mount Allison in the art program because the fine arts and the applied arts were taught absolutely side by side. Uh, in the late 30s, there was no animosity, there was no hierarchy. They were, and, and one of his fellow students was indeed Alex Colville, and he sat side by side with Alex. Alex took some courses in jewelry, and Arthur took some courses in painting. Yeah. It was a, a rare slice of time, because that changed after the war, when enrollment went up. They separated the two departments. Okay, yeah. But yeah and, was, and the head of the art department was uh, Lauren Harris. Yes, he came out in 1947. Yeah. Now, my teacher had graduated by then, but he, uh, our, my teacher, Arthur Bracken, had stayed on to assist in the instruction and to use the studio situa situation there until 1954. So he knew Lauren Harris not only at Mount Allison, but also at a small um, private uh, uh, boys' school in Ontario called Pickering College. Okay. Uh, that's yeah. where he first actually met Lauren Harris Jr. Right. Now, he had an interesting early life as Absolutely. well. He was born in Toronto. That's right. And But then didn't stay in Toronto very long. <laughs> His parents were both missionaries. Uh, his father was a, a, a professor of theology at Mount Allison, as was his grandfather, actually. Huh. Both had taught theology at Mount Allison. 
And um, so they, they were stationed in China from, I think, 1907 to 1915 as missionaries. Central China is about 2,500 miles inland uh, near the Himalayas. And um, in 1915, they had, before that, they had put their name in to adopt a child. So they weren't able to have their own at that point. And so their name, their name came up in, in Canada, in Toronto, and that was Arthur Brecken. And so they came back to Canada and adopted Arthur. And at age of six months, he went back with them for another eight, nine, nine years, actually, almost ten years. And that's where he, he was, I think he was, um, his whole life was shaped by that experience. Yeah. Yeah, you, you, up there. you told me the story, and it's it's in the the catalog uh, of the exhibit as well. The story about how, in the summer, when it got very hot, they would they would make this trek, this kind of romantic sounding trek up the up the mountains. He yeah. talked often about that. It was wonderfully nostalgic, and I loved listening to him talk about it. I gather it was a four day hike, with Sherpas, so with people carrying, including carrying him when he was younger. <laughs> yeah, um, four days. Uh, they would sleep at monasteries at night. Uh, one Buddhist monastery is now a World Heritage Site at Mount Omai. Now it's called Imai, Imai Shan, actually. There's several names. But it's a World Heritage Site because it is the oldest Buddhist monastery in China. Uh, and that's where they had a summer cottage. Mm. And he said it was cooler there, fireflies all through the night. It was just like magic. Yeah. That's, that was sort of his influence when he was younger. Yeah, and it, and he eventually they eventually came back to to Canada. Yeah, nineteen twenty four is when they moved back here. Twenty five yeah. by the yeah. time they got back to Canada. So, what was your first introduction to to Arthur? He was my high school art teacher. Um, I was very fortunate to have him uh, as my art teacher because he only taught at that school for six years, and at that time, my five years of high school from grades nine to thirteen were exactly when he was there. Yeah, and. Um, when I went to the classroom, the first time I went to the classroom, actually, I was just wanting to find a quiet place to do some music homework because I was studying music. And I looked around, and I couldn't believe my eyes. They were doing architectural drawing. They were doing architectural model making. I loved doing that just by myself, just for fun. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I was already doing that without even being in school about it. And, and oh, the soapstone sculpting and high-fired enameling, things like this in a very small high school, and the jewelry work. Yeah. Courses you'd never normally find in a high school much larger. I thought, gosh, and this is about November or something. I said, Arthur, Bre Mr. Brecken, could I possibly sign on now? Because I hadn't started in high school in art. Um, and, and he said, of course you can. So I just basically picked up where they were at and kept going. And all the rest of high school, he was my art teacher. Yeah. And, and so what was, how did you decide which, which aspect of, of the work you were, because they offered all these different courses mm -hmm. or all these different uh, types of art and craft that you could, you could pursue. How did you, how did you focus in on, on metalworking? I think it's just the materials themselves spoke to me. Uh, yeah. I, I, I don't relate as much to flimsy things, say it's cloth or, or clay or things that don't hold their shape. <laughs> I prefer something that's very, ten, very uh, precise. Yeah. And so the, the, the metal held its shape. So I could work very precisely in jewelry work or in stone setting. But I also liked the, the malleable quality. Uh, when you work with hammers and anvil-like tools, the, the metal will move like a plastic solid very gradually and slowly compared to clay, say. Yeah. But it's much the same principle when one is forming a hollow vessel in, in metal. It's the same forces being applied to it as one would on a, on a potter's wheel, right. constricting the circumference and getting more thickness to bring higher. It's the same plastic idea. Yeah, yeah. So you, you did the work there uh, in high school. That was your, your introduction. And then what was your trajectory, I guess, as an artist? Well, it's really through Mr. Brecken again. He took me under his wing because he saw how keen I was. And maybe, maybe I showed some aptitude. But he allowed me to use his, his home studio, which was just his kitchen, 
uh, to the point that I was there most of the summer, uh, even when I went to university in, in music. I studied music at Toronto before I ended up studying art um, in, a, in, a, in a postgraduate, I mean a post-secondary school. And um, I, I spent the whole summers at his place. I didn't go off to Banff and, and play the violin in the summer. I did the jewelry because I, I began to realize even then, after my first year of music, that I was not cut out to be on stage. I preferred to make my works of art behind the scenes right. in the privacy of my studio and where no one would see the evidence of the struggle and I would get them the way I wanted before I present them to the audience or the customer. Yeah. That was the difference. So I worked at his house you know, in, in, in school, uh, in high school, on the weekends and in the evenings sometimes especially after I finished high school, in the summers. And he was a facilitator as much as a teacher. He taught me the basics about, say, how to use a torch and safety things. But from there on, he was just gave me the, the space to work, and he also helped me. Um, he, he funded me to, to, to enter some competitions and paid for some courses in, in smithing and so on that he didn't do himself. So, so tell me a little bit about the, the type of work that you were doing in those, those early kind of formative years of your practice. It was all jewelry at that stage, Dale, because uh, Mr. Brecken didn't actually do the larger hollower. Uh, he didn't have the larger anvils or hammer, hammers that are required for that kind of scale, mm-hmm. uh, or even a large enough torch to, to heat that kind of size. So it was all jewelry scale, uh, but small hollower, like little perfume bottles, this type of thing, or inkwells, that type of thing I did as well and spoons, that, that was possible to make something as large as a, you know, a serving spoon, for example. Yeah. But uh, a lot of jewelry, and I gravitated towards stone setting. Uh, it was kind of charming because the way he set stones is before we had any kind of power tools. Uh, I now have a little tool that's like a jackhammer, so I can work with that, and it does the actual tapping for me. But when I was starting with Arthur Reckon, he would stand behind me with a little hammer, and right over my shoulder, he would just tap the end of a steel tool like a pencil, and I'd be ironing over the edge of the metal around the stone with that. Well, he, was, he never missed it. He never <laughs> missed a beat. It was sometimes it would take an hour. <laughs> right, yeah. I kind of cherished that. But... Um, I, I really gravitated toward the stone setting because I love the combination of putting a bit of color with the, the precious metals and the precision. And it's almost some, some stones like opals and so on have like a little world down inside them. I just kind of imagine being down in there, you know, just there's a magic to those stones. There's more yeah. than some of the parts. Yeah. yeah. Uh, one, of the, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about was this, this is the idea of mentorship and, and how, you know, he kind of worked with you and kind of got you started. In, in the catalog, you talk about some of the lessons you, you learned from him. And, and there was one thing that I, I specifically wanted to ask you about. You write about how he, he taught you to work around a problem, to kind of look at a problem from all sides. Can, can you tell that story? Sure, yes. It was, actually a, it was actually in the context of a commission that he had received himself that he passed along to me. And it required me to make six identical lapel pins. It was actually for a, a geology club and um, it was the shape of a crystal so they had the letter T inside with a tetrahedron or something and there was the shape of a crystal that I was going to create by etching and he did quite a bit of etching where you, you, you put a wax resist over the surface of the metal and then you remove the wax where you want acid to eat away at the metal so, <clears throat> so he did quite a few large copper trays that way but these were small scale jewelry scale etchings in sterling silver well I worked away at those and got those as precisely as possible all six of them identical as possible and um, finally, I said, Arthur, are they ready to put in the acid? And he looked at them and said, not quite. And this went over two or three times, not quite. They're almost ready. Finally, he said, you know, you have completely forgotten to put any, any wax on the backs 
of these pieces or the edges, the asset's going to hit there too. Right. <laughs> I, I you know, completely forgot to think around the whole piece, right? And that was a really good lesson. Yeah. <laughs> you've got to think around the subject and figure out, even when there's problem solving, figure out from different angles how to solve it, right? So he said, don't worry about it, don't worry about it. My teacher, uh, I did the same thing when I was a student, but my teacher didn't tell me, and I, I ruined the pieces, right? So it was a really good lesson. Yeah, <laughs> and it's a good, it's a good life lesson in, in a way, the idea that you know, you, you, sometimes we're, when we look at a problem, we're looking at it head on, and, and I think that idea that you know, look at a problem from all sides and look around it is That's the way right. to kind of figure out your, the way of working. Like, do you remember that when you're, oh, when you're doing yes. work today? Yeah. Oh, yes, and another little story. He, he shared with me a perfume bottle. It's in the exhibition. Uh, after it came back from uh, a display, he, he, he uh, did it for a competition. Uh, he looked at it and he realized he had cut the center hole of this, per this um, inkwell. Did I say perfume bottle? I meant to say inkwell, this little inkwell. Um, the center hole is way off center. And he said, I didn't see that when I was making it. And he, so he said, always step back and have a look at your piece. Take a rest from it. Go for a walk. <laughs> yeah. look, at, look at your garden, whatever. Come back and you'll maybe have a fresh look. You might see something you didn't see before, right? Yeah. Or have a fresh idea, even, of what direction to take. Uh, that was a good lesson, too. Yeah. And he used, he used himself as an example. So we, we're talking a little bit about the, the, the current uh, exhibit, which is a traveling exhibit. Where, where is the exhibit going? It's finishing here in, in St. John's on Saturday, the 21st of April. So uh, it's going to go next to Vancouver this summer. So early July, I think it's July 5th to August 16th in, in Vancouver at the Craft Council of British Columbia yeah. on Granville Island. Then it's going back to Ontario, um, a museum uh, setting, uh, the Wellington County Museum and Archives near Fergus, which is west of Toronto. Um, that's the area that my teacher lived in for 50 years and the area where I grew up. And a lot of the photographs in the catalog are from that exactly collection? Right. Yeah, yeah, and, and from that area. Yeah. yeah, his house and so on in Erin. The little town was Erin, Ontario, about 50 miles, 80 kilometers northwest of Toronto. That's where I went to high school. Fergus is just a little farther west again, north of Guelph. Yeah. So it's out in the country between Fergus and Alora, but that's where it's coming to in Ontario. Uh, and so that's between, <coughs> um, get the dates right now, September 8th, no, September 9th to October 28th. Yeah, September 9th to October 28th, it'll be in Ontario. And then it's coming to Halifax, to the Mary E. Black Gallery in Halifax, November 9th, am I right? November uh, yeah, November 8th, November 8th, to, 8th. to December 21st. Exactly. And then, and then you finish up in 2019 back in, in Cornerbrook. Yes, it's going to come full circle. Your home turf. Yeah, it's going to yeah. come back to where I live. Yeah. And that'll be at the, uh, is the, the New City Hall, actually. The Rotary Arts Center in the New City Hall has a gallery named after one of our artists who passed away young. It was yeah. Tina Dolter. Yes, yeah. The Tina Dolter Gallery. Yeah. So, yeah. so tell me about the exhibit, the idea, where did the, the idea for doing the exhibit come from? Well, the very first inkling that I might like to do this someday was 30 years ago when I actually started out on my own. 32 years ago I came to Newfoundland and I, I, I branched out as a freelance artist. And at that point I wrote to Arthur Brecken. We had this long correspondence already so I just wrote to him and I said this is what I'm going to do now. And immediately he wrote back, I want to order two major pieces from you. So that's where it began. And one of the pieces he ordered was actually a Chinese pagoda. And so I made it in his style because the Chinese connection was so, so important to him. Mm -hmm. And that, just having done that sort of as a tribute to him then, started the, the, the gears rolling. Maybe I could do an, an exhibition that's in tribute to him someday. Later, when he passed away, he had willed all his raw materials to me. 
And in amongst those were some, some unexpected things. There was a little Chinese ring that I didn't even know he had that his parents must have brought back from China. It's all stamped with Chinese symbols. And it has exactly the same uh, decorative motifs that all of Arthur's work has, little spherical beads, or they're called shot, almost like granulation. They're all soldered on in place. There's twisted wire like rope, two strands twisted like rope. That's around this ring. There's coiled wire around this ring. All the same signature kind of uh, patterns were were on it. So I'm sure he must have looked at that when he was younger and studied that ring, much as I did study his work later. that also, when I realized I had that, I thought this would be great to, to sort of be a, a starting point to tell the story of how our styles evolved and where I've, what's influenced me eventually. Um, and, and also amongst the, the, the uh, scraps was a composite of copper and sterling that he had soldered together. It was still rough, just, just rough-shaped pieces soldered together that he would normally take and carve. And there's a ring in the exhibition that he has carved, and there's one that I've got beside it that is this rough chunk carved into my style, mm-hmm. but it's using a piece that he actually made. <laughs> so that, those things kind of uh, got me thinking even more. I'd like to do a tribute. All the, of the silver work that, that Arthur had on hand when he passed away went to his niece, and for 12 years she didn't open the boxes. So I didn't know where they were or if, even if she had them. Finally, in 2015, I said, you know, Gwen, could you see if the silver works there? I would love to do a tribute to your uncle. So she opened them up. The last box she opened was the <laughs> silver work. <laughs> and sure enough, she said, I said, well, could, I, could, I, could I select a few pieces? She said, Wes, take the whole box and work with it. So that's, that really catapulted me. You know, in 2015, that's when I began working on this exhibition. Mm-hmm. And so roughly how many pieces are in the, are in the show? Altogether, there's 73. Yeah. One of them is a wood carving, but there's 73 pieces. All the rest are silver. 23 of those are my teachers, Arthur Brecken's work. Uh, and 50 are, are pieces that I've made in the past. Some of them are early pieces. Some of them are pieces I've made that still connect to him, like the pagoda. And several I've made over the last three years specifically in tribute to him. Yeah. Can, can you talk specifically about the one piece that I was really impressed with was the uh, the root vase. Oh, yeah. Can you, can you describe that piece? Sure. Because one of the things that meant a lot to Arthur Brecken was that his name could actually be written with a Chinese symbol. And the actual word in Chinese that came closest to his surname was the word for root, R-O-O-T. He used that actually on a lot of those copper trays I mentioned. He used that in his leather tooling with dragons protecting the symbol, this type of thing. So it meant a lot to him. Um, I thought to myself, well, what can I do? What kind of concept could I come up with that would make sense? Even if someone didn't know what the word meant, it would make sense. And I thought, well, if I were to fashion a weathered tree stump as a vase, or even a sculpture, but this is actually a little vase, then in cross-section, the shape of that tree stump could be the, the symbol for the word root. So this is what I did. I constructed it so that when you look at it from the top, it's exactly the shape of a the word root in contemporary standard script in Chinese. But as it go down, it, it forms itself into roots that surround a limestone rock. It's actually a fossil I found as a child in southern Ontario. It's a fossilized coral. And so literally, literally his name is rooted yeah. to this rock. And then around the base, you have <laughs> the, those, that gemstone work that yep. you were describing earlier. Arthur loved to find little scenes in nature, like around the base of a tree in the woods, where there's sort of a carpet of moss and one time I remember he was just delighted to find a little mouse's house in it. And so I actually created a little, little sort of carpet of gold 
and emeralds set into the gold to create the colors of moss around the base of the stump, right, right next to the limestone itself, right in the base. And in there, actually, I did put a little mouse's house. Mouse, yeah. <laughs> a little mouse hole, yeah. A prime piece of real estate there. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that idea of humor mm. uh, in the work is something that you have incorporated into the, into the exhibit as well. You have a whole, uh, whole case there that is kind of humorous pieces. Absolutely, Dale. Uh, oh, yes. I mean, he had a terrific sense of humor. Usually puns and very often the corny kind, but he just he would laugh so hard at his own jokes, you just had to laugh along, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But uh, one of the pieces I put in there is just a little mustache comb in the shape of a mustache. So it's like a visual pun or a shoehorn in the shape of a bare foot with toenails, you know. So things like that, he would get a kick out of it. Yeah. Yeah. So same with The Little Mouse's House. Same with actually one of the pieces is in the music, um, the music uh, theme. There's several themes, including humor, music, faith, and so on. In the music uh, theme, there's one piece that I did in the shape of his initial A, the way he would tend to sign it. But it holds a tuning fork for music. It was is tuned to the note A, and I call it A tuning fork paperweight. So he would love the three levels of meaning right there. Yeah, it's a pun almost, right? Yeah, and I love the the letter opener that the the long letter opener for long letters. That's, That's exactly what I called it because he would like the fact that it would, it would imply it's for long winded correspondences maybe, yeah. or for big envelopes maybe. This is it's quite quite large, thirteen inches. I think it's thirteen inches long. Yeah. I was I was forging that from a, a twenty ounce ingot, and it just came out way longer than I expected, and I thought. I'm not going to cut that shorter. He says, I've got this to work with. So I named it the letter opener for long letters. Yeah. Um, so how has your work evolved over time? Like, have your, the techniques that you started with, have they, have they changed? Have you developed new techniques throughout the years? Yes, actually. Uh, the way it's evolved from my teacher's work is that I've also been trained in smithing. So I went to a, a school north of... Detroit called Cranbrook Academy of Art, and that was in creating the larger scale hollowware with hammers and anvil-like tools. Uh, Arthur didn't do that kind of uh, smithing very much. Um, so that evolved in terms of just working on a larger scale. My style evolved out of what was more or less an ornate style that Arthur tended to use with a lot of this pattern work to much more of a cleaner, pure forms and reduced and simplified um, designs and so mm -hmm. on. There's one spoon, for example, in the T-service, it's just a simple propeller twist. It's level to the table where the spoon is needed, it becomes vertical where there's the, the narrow part of the handle, and becomes level to the table where the, where the hand receives it. Same with the letter opener, it's just a real clean shape that reads clearly as to how, do you, how you pick it up, etc. Um, so my style has evolved at Arthur's in terms of being much more um, reduced and simplified, clean flowing lines, lyrical lines almost. Mm -hmm. Um, and in terms of techniques, yes, uh, specifically stone setting, um, I would say maybe 20, 25 years ago, I was able to acquire a, um, a machine that I can polish stones on and, and, and sand them and, and cut them. Mm -hmm. So that I started cutting my own stones like labradorite, medium hardness materials, not, not like diamonds and faceted stones, but I'm talking about like agates or jade or labradorite, it's that type of thing. I can cut myself now and all of a sudden it gave me the chance to customize the stones the way I wished. So I started figuring out different ways of securing them by carving a groove in them. There's one ring in the show, for example, it's just an egg, a quartz egg. I've carved a groove in that quartz egg to receive a wire and that's what holds it in place. So then it, it just opened up all kinds of possibilities for alternate stone setting techniques. So to answer your question, yes, I've really experimented a lot with different ways of setting stones that are not traditional at all. Yeah. 
I, I noticed as well, like Arthur's work, we talked about that Chinese influence in some of his imagery and, and, and his influences with the rings and whatnot. You've, your work is now influenced as well a bit by Asian techniques. You, you've been learning some of these Japanese techniques for, for metal work. Absolutely. There's, and there's one specific, and I'm going to get you to pronounce it so I don't butcher the pronunciation. No, I might have it wrong myself, but I think the word is, it's a Japanese word, mokamegane. Okay. And so what does that mean? In, in Japanese, that means wood grain metal. Okay. It actually derives from the samurai sword tradition where steel would be forged over and folded and forged over and folded and, and the, the uh, layers that are resulting would have a, a, a colored mark off between them. You'd see a darker line where the, where the layers have been forged together. Mm -hmm. The similar idea is, 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 is in Mokamegani where different colors of non-iron metal, like non-ferrous, gold, silver, copper, brass, and so on, can be laminated in a stack. So different colors of metal are flat as possible, clean as possible, under pressure and heat, they actually fuse as a solid block. And if it works, if it works, <laughs> if it stays strong, it's just as strong as a solid piece of metal to start with, as a, a single type of piece of metal. So then I can hammer that and I can start to carve into the interior layers as I start to hammer it out more and more toward a sheet of metal. And just drill into it, carve into it, edge section, you know, get a, a carving on a, a diagonal on the edges and you get these wonderful wood grain lines yeah. and knot holes and so on yeah you have a very beautiful piece uh, a kind of a sculptural vase right. piece in in the exhibit and it and it really is evocative of that wood grain yeah, like you, you look at it and it really does look organic absolutely it's more organic than most of my work actually um, it is in the shape of a tree it's a, actually I call it a bonsai bowl and uh, the base of it, I tried to make the, the pattern of gold that's exposed look like roots and mosses around the base. And the, uh, the uh, top bowl area is more like uh, foliage. The pattern within that looks like foliage with branches that yeah. are also the same wood grain metal. Yeah, yeah uh, I, I wish Arthur could have seen that. I made that in, in the year he passed away, actually. But he knew about the technique and he was quite excited about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I mentioned in the introduction that nature is one of these themes that you find yourself kind of returning to. Uh, I'm, I'm curious about what are you working on now? Now that the exhibit is kind of up and running, are there pieces that you're that you're contemplating or pieces that you're working on now that are influenced by nature in some way? Well, I haven't come up with the final design, but I, I, there, there is a, a, a exhibition I'm going to work toward in 2019 for Peace Day, actually, for International Peace Day. And I, I need to have two pieces made for that. Um, so I'm thinking along the nature theme there, something that maybe maybe a, a, a triple candle holder that grows out of the peace symbol, like three strands coming up and becoming almost like tree trunks or something coming up for the whole candles. I'm just not sure what I'll do, but yeah, nature is a very strong, uh, it is the universal source of inspiration, I think, for many creative people. Mm -hmm. uh, for me, I just see such an infinite variety within unity or diversity within order. You know, you can look at one elm tree or whatever, it's never quite the same twice, different lighting, different seasons, whatever, or, or even just different elm trees are never the same, but you know what it is, it's an elm tree, right? You can tell. So there's a unity, but there's a diversity. I find that, it comes through in my work just that I always do one of a kind. I don't have any interest in making the same thing twice. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think nature did either. <laughs> so it's like that. But I also see um, a lot of parallels in terms of uh, almost all the work I do is uh, functional or utilitarian. And I see parallels in nature of animals or, or trees or, or organisms that are, are designed to function perfectly. 
And that's the recipe for beauty right there, form and function fused. When you get, say, an animal designed for speed, like a falcon or you know, a dolphin in water or, or whatever, a, a cheetah on land, they're beautiful animals. And they're absolutely designed to be able to catch the food the fastest. Mm-hmm. So that's form and function fused right there. Uh, so as we're, as we're drawing kind of towards the end of our chat, the, the exhibit is going off, it's living a life, it's traveling the world. And, and if people want to find more information about the exhibit or about your work, how can they find you? How, where can they go? They can go to my website. Uh, I haven't advertised the show strongly on the website, but my email is there, and I'd be glad to let them know where it's going next. Um, it's uh, www.wesleyharris.com. That's W-E-S-L-E-Y-H-A-R-R-I-S dot C-A. www.wesleyharris.ca. Okay. Well, we'll send some people there. And if people are coming to the exhibit, is there a favorite piece of Arthur's that you have in the show? I think, actually, yes. Uh, oh, uh, there's several. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think perhaps the little doll's tea set is my favorite. Uh, he made a miniature tea set because he didn't have the equipment to make a full-scale one. And so I did. I made a full-scale tea service as a companion piece to that. There's, there are several groupings as well in, in companion pairings in the show. So we'll send people to the exhibit and, and keep your eye out for the tea sets. Dolls tea set. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much for coming. Thanks, Dale. I'm Dale Jarvis. You've been listening to Living Heritage, a production of CHMR Radio 93.5 in collaboration with the Intangible Cultural Heritage Office of the Heritage Foundation of Newfoundland and Labrador. Find us online at ichblog.ca or on iTunes. Our production assistant is Tara Barrett. We would love to know what you think of the show. Leave us a comment on the Living Heritage Podcast Facebook page or tweet us at HFNLCA. Thanks for listening.